Daniel Cronin's In Conversation With, brought to you by Puris Ultra Pure CBD, the first CBD food supplement backed by clinical studies. Puris is not addictive and won't give you high. Loved by actress and TV personality Martine McCutcheon for general coping and rugby legend Mike Tyndall for sleep. Visit the website today on www.puriscbd.com. everybody and welcome to Daniel Cronin Conversation with and this morning in the studio with me is Kevin MacDonald and Kevin MacDonald is a UN Peace Officer or Security Officer Security Officer and Kevin is in here today because Kevin I was uh, cruising around on Facebook there and we're on Lockray Memories and I saw that Kevin had done a study on the islands of the lake an archaeological uh, study and I was interested in it and um he kindly sent on an abbreviated version of it. You, you put on uh, one later on. And today, Sunday, um, Kevin is delivering a talk in the Lockray Hotel. First of all, Kevin, you're welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank, thank, thanks for having me. Kevin, uh, today, we'll, well, we did this recording a little, a couple of days beforehand, because today, uh, Sunday, you're above at the at the. At, um, it's part of the medieval festival. Yeah, and it's it's a one day conference looking at the the fairly rich and varied um, both archaeology and history uh, that surrounds not just the town but the the, the local countryside as well. And uh, we'll get to it now because we'll we'll chat about it later on. There's a there's a lot of stuff up there today. There was stuff running on Friday and Saturday as well, but on Sunday you have um, there's ecclesiastical talks. There's there's a talk on medieval music. There's a talk. Uh, Kieran O'Connor is giving a, a talk on moated sites, which which is like Anglo-Norman uh, farmsteads. Uh, and I'm giving a talk looking at the Cranogs, but also trying to see how the Cranogs figure into the, the larger landscape. In other words, what was going on in the landscape in the Neolithic, in the Bronze Age, early medieval, and uh, and with the Anglo-Norman. So I'm trying to tie in the connection between the lake and the, and the countryside. So that's that's essentially what... I, I hope to be imparting. Good on you. Fantastic. We'll have a chat about that later on. Kevin, you're no stranger. Kevin, you're from Castlebar. I am indeed. A proud me, old man. <laughs> Very good. Oh, God, dear God. God, dear God. God, help God, God, Castlebar, lovely. I was up there at a wedding a couple of years ago and uh, we were just outside it and we came in. Lovely town. Ah, it is, yeah. It's, it's a great town. Great town to have grown up in. Um, and I have to say, one of the the enduring memories, uh, certainly being in national school and, and later on in secondary school, was the sound every summer in, uh, there was a large military barracks in Castlebar and we'd hear the gunfire of the, the guys practicing on the range and it was something we all aspired to. So, um, of course, you have to be 17 to join the FCA, so I was a bit creative with my birth cert and um, joined the, the 5th Motor Squadron, as it was, and I managed to get... Uh, a military driving license for Land Rovers, uh, Bedford trucks, Sandlass motorcycles, and a Unimog armored car before I was sort of legally old enough to drive on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Good idea. And uh, would there be? There used to be an FCA barracks in Loch Ray here as well. Was it? It was. Was it a very large barracks in? Castlebar? Oh yeah, I mean the, the, the post here in Lockray was, was like a small hall. Yes, but the barracks in Castlebar was a huge. St still is a huge. Uh, and it, and it was only FCA. It was only FCA. Yeah, only FCA. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't yeah. army. It, no, um, but it, the army used it a lot for exercises. You know, up in North yeah. Mayo and that kind of stuff. Um, but when it was occupied by the British Army, it was huge, absolutely huge. And so when you were in there, uh, like how many, um, what would be the intake? I mean, would it be, when would you leave the FCA? Uh, well, if you, well, you were allowed to go in at 17? You, you, Bar, could, yeah. you could sort of stay literally as long as, as you wanted. And, you know, people, I know my, my brother Brendan spent, I don't know how many years, but he retired on age grounds. So he, he would have joined just after me. Okay. Um, and he retired on age grounds back there a few years ago. Um, but it wouldn't but have been a huge commitment. I mean, you it, could have been it, part it was, of it. I wonder. It, it it was, but it, it, not alone was it a, a kind of. It was good for, I suppose, giving you a, a sense of responsibility. There was a nice bit of money out of it as well. There was um, because there was. we we used to go on a weekend camp. We'd leave Castlebar on a Friday, go to Longford, and then come back on a Sunday. And as a trooper, which is like a private soldier, um, yeah. 
were paid five pounds. <laughs> I was expecting a little bit more than that. that that's just for a week. But, but uh, like, when you're, that's when what you're five young, pounds was. It was five pounds. When you're a young fella living at home, <laughs> yeah. I'll put it this way. There's no way you drink five pounds in a weekend. Okay, okay. Well, now, now you're talking. Now you're talking. And then that's when you went on a two-week camp, um, you got paid the equivalent pay rate of of the, the regular army. Uh, yeah. But it was tax-free. Um, yes. Because I know in... Uh, I, I did the leave insert in 1977. I was 16. And when the leave insert finished, I got about five or six weeks full-time training with the FCA. Yeah. Between Longford and the Glen of Amal and a few places. Um, and at the end of that, I bought a three-piece suit for the, for the interviews. And I bought... A 1960 Mark One Escort, which I couldn't drive on the road. Okay, you were still I, too young. I bought it for fifty pounds and I sold it for I think eighty five or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a nice, it was a nice. Uh, but I, I was passionate about it. I, I just, I loved everything about the FCA. I loved going on camps. I loved going on exercises and yeah, um, it was, it was interesting. Uh, one our one of our commanding officers um, left the unit, and he became the first commanding officer of the Army Ranger Wing. Yeah, uh, and they were running a, a course for instructors, and he decided that we, his old unit, would be the ideal enemy. And this course the, had been the FCA unit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, we, yeah. We, we were the first Army unit <coughs> to train with the Rangers, even though we were FCA. Yeah, um, and we spent. Oh, nearly two weeks in North, North Mayo where yeah. they were hunting us and we were trying to chase them and I, I, like for a young fella and then you know they, they brought us into one of their base camps and showed us all their weapons and everything and like these were like gods you know yes yes yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it's um, it's ironic when I subsequently joined the Ranger Wing and we were running in an instructor's course we ended up in the exact same wood that we had been, yes, had been in yeah, previous yeah, just, yeah. just purely by chance and I was saying to myself, I never thought back then that I'd be back. I'd be one of the other guys yeah. yes, <laughs> coming yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I know the, the FCA was absolutely. I think, I think it's a shame that, and and they had a much greater reach in society than than the regular army. Absolutely, you yeah. know, you had Ballina and Westport and Lockray, and yet all these places where where the army had a connection, um, but were like a, like a footprint, and it was, it was, it it got a lot of. Um, a lot of people interested in, in the army got a lot of people you know aware of just things like you know responsibility for your actions a bit of discipline and and all these things that are are i think really important you know especially for teenagers growing up you know mm -hmm. um but sadly it's you know i mean there's no fca base in castlebar there's none here in lockray oh, it's uh, gone the castlebar is gone it's gone as a base as a, like the buildings are there but but um and it, th th there's a, there's like a, a tiny presence there but compared to yeah, what it was. Uh, Westport is gone. Ballina is gone. Uh, is, there, I mean, is there FCA anymore? I, th there is, but like, take for instance, if you're in Castlebar, yeah, your base is in either the Curra or Cork. The Curra or Cork. That depends on whether you, you know you want to stay cavalry or, or infantry. Okay. Um, so that that sense of locality is is, is gone. But I mean, mm -hmm. even if you look at the army bases, when I joined the army in '83. You had uh, just looking at, at the border, right? So you had Finner, Lifford, and Rock Hill. Then you had um, a post between Rock Hill. Then you had Longford, um, Cavancoot Hill, Monaghan, Castle Blaney, uh, Dundalk. You had a, like a string of posts. And now there's a post in, on the west in Finner and on the east in Dundalk. Nothing in between. Now, would that have been because of the troubles? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, that oh, was yeah, a, yeah. Direct a direct uh, yeah. result of that, because the, yeah. the, the three the three sort of newest battalions that were formed in the army, the 27th Battalion based in Dundalk, the 28th Battalion based in Finner, and the uh, 29th Battalion based in Coot Hill, or sorry, okay. headquarters in Coot Hill. Um, so they, they were as a, a direct result of instead of an ad hoc system of bringing troops from Cork and Dublin up and mm -hmm. giving them six months on the border, they, they created these battalions and yeah. the idea was that these would be, you know, permanently based um, along the border. So, like, all that, that 
you know, with Brexit and everything like that, it, it's it's um, it all these bases are a huge lot, and it's not just the bases; it's the local knowledge. Yes, because, like the the border is an extremely complicated place. Like sometimes it runs through the middle of a field, and if you I haven't been yeah, shown yeah. the dynamics of exactly where it is, this is how things happen when people don't know which side of the line they should be they should be on. Um, and I mean, the great one is where your man is reputed to have sheds and yes, straddling yes, the yes, border. Yes, I mean, that's yes, uh, reputed has <laughs> has yeah yeah. Well, I, I, I was yeah, going, yeah. I, I had to say because I, I was never up there, but yeah, you'd read about it. Tell us, uh, Kevin. So you had a great interest in the FCA growing up, but uh, tell us, you were uh, you're no stranger to. The, the radio <laughs> <laughs> as, as we discussed yeah, yeah I, I um I I used to do um uh, a stint on uh, a pirate radio uh, based above a pub as you know as as a pirate radio should be yes <laughs> so, yeah, good so the, the pub was the Humber Inn a really really good uh, pub in Castlebar still there uh, is it still there no the, the building is still there yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but unfortunately was it was um uh, like uh, there was a, a band kind of formed as, as a result of playing there called General Humbert and Mary Black was one of their uh, okay. key singers uh, but yeah I used to have um, every Saturday Cajun Max Hour of Blues on Mayo Community Radio 303 metres medium wave and 98 on the great Stereo FM I still remember it <laughs> but I, 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 I used to be preparing my playlist with my list of LPs downstairs in the bar and then I'd go up to the attic and start playing blues. <laughs> it was I great. Mean, will you tell us, like that time, uh, so you're talking about early 80s. Yeah, 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 maybe 80, 81, something like that, I think. So yeah. what, what was the story? Were you, a, like it's pirate radio, were you breaking laws here? Well. Or was it all very grey and shady, or what was the great uh, <laughs> it, it was certainly, yeah, there was a hit, there was a whiff of illegality about it. <laughs> Shall we say? Just added uh, to the frisson. Yeah, added to the frisson, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, it was kind of hush-hush, you, you know. <laughs> where, where, where are you going with all them records at five o'clock on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon? Say, yeah. Um, but, I, like, I, I, I don't know. Like, there was permanent guys there, you know. Uh, yeah. I presume they raised money from advertising. Uh, for me, it was just a bit of a laugh. And I was passionate about blues as well, so yes. it, it was... Um, but I mean, they, they gave a lot of, you know, and community announcements and, you know, shouts out to people. Like it was like, a, I, I suppose a bit like here, like it was a genuine yeah. uh, a radio station by, of and for the community. For the local locality, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, people people would, you know, and of course there was various characters would, would do a stint on it as well. And, um, but that was, it was all, all good, clean fun. Yes. <laughs> And I love that you'd have to go up with the LPs and the, yeah, the records. Yeah, it was yeah. all. Oh, there's nothing online. <laughs> nothing on exactly. Like, we were just uh, queuing up a bit of music there, and like we're on Spotify and we're on YouTube, uh, grabbing stuff. And um, when you, yeah, you'd get into that, and uh, that was good. A crack. How long did? It, and before that, as you say, that's like at that time, like around say Lock Ray. We'd have had no Galway BFM at the time. No, no. So there would have only been Radio 1, Radio 2, and... Well, we, well you had Luxembourg. So this would be and, the big pirate yeah, radio yeah, station. Yeah, and Radio Caroline, which I, I, I think was on a ship uh, someplace. I think out, so. I think outside, so. like we said, the UK territorial waters. So yeah. that couldn't be kind of And that caught. used to be able to beam in yeah. to Irish households. Yeah. Could you get past Dublin? Could you get in the West? Oh, yeah. Like in Castlebar, as... As young teenagers, we listen to Radio Luxembourg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, up in the attic of our house. <laughs> the attics were getting the great coat over, and the styros weren't even going that yeah. time. But tell it, so you you wait, you came out. You, you did your leaving cert at sixteen. Sixteen, yeah, and I started work in Casey's Garage, Castle Bar, on the tenth of the tenth, nineteen seventy-seven, at the age of sixteen, as, as a, a warranty assessor. So you were going a warranty assessor. So you go. So that's a write-off. No, no, not that okay. kind of. So okay. we'll say if you okay. if you bought a new Ford Escort and the shocks went in it, okay. So you'd come in to get them replaced under warranty. So for for the garage to get reimbursed, someone had to make a claim, okay, to Fords and Cork. Yes, yes. You know, given that the owner, the registration, the chassis number, 
the part number that was uh, and placed. you were doing the paperwork, yeah. is it? Essentially, yeah. And look, okay. there was a standard time allowed, say, to change a pair of shocks. Yes. So I, I used to send all the claims to... to uh, that's, what I, that's what I did for a couple of years. And then then I was a service manager in the Ford garage in Athlone, uh, Tony Kilmartin. Um, then I became an ambulance driver in Castlebar. I was kind of getting homesick. Um, and then, um, then I was laid off for... So I was only temporary as an ambulance driver. That's uh, what I was about to say, yeah. yeah it, 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 was, it was like, that only in Ireland could you have a, your position be temporary full-time. Yeah, 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 yeah. As opposed to temporary part-time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, yeah, so when, when my stint there came up, I, I was... I was. Um, what was Castle Bar like in the early 80s? Ah, uh, it was great. Ah, uh, sure. Like, it, for us, it was great. We had the FCA, we had the, the lake where you could go swimming. Um, was there work up there? Um, were there factories? Are, are, yeah, yeah. There was the. Cause it's a big town. The, the Bacon Factory was a big employer. Um, I did, uh, my my recollection is that if if you wanted work, there was no problem getting it. Okay. Um, although I have to say, ironically, when when um, when when I finished up with the, the health board, and I was maybe two or three months, kind of trying to find something to do uh, about. A year and a half previously, there was all these ads in in the newspapers. Wanted one thousand guards. Um, so, a few of us in in the Humbert, <coughs> there was a bet put on. I bet you wouldn't apply. I bet you would. I bet you wouldn't. So, anyways, the bet was for three pints. <laughs> and myself and another fellow applied, and um, the other fellow wasn't. Uh, he was too short. So <laughs> to say so, this is what's yeah, mean, so yeah. I. I was uh, called for the first interview uh, at, at the local Garda station, and then I did an interview in Tume or something like that. And I never, <laughs> probably shouldn't be saying this on, on, on air, but I got I got this letter back. Uh, Dear Mr. MacDonald, we were directed by the Minister for Justice to inform you you've been placed, whatever, 80th out of so many thousand candidates. Yeah, yeah. Uh, please indicate below whether you're A, willing or B, unwilling to accept the above appointment. Yeah. So I put down unwilling. Sent it, took a photocopy of it, sent it back, went into the pub on the Friday night and claimed me three points. <laughs> of course, the, the local super went crazy. You know, because he he'd obviously to, given the thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Quite a number of years later, I, I regretted it completely, especially comparing the wages between the army and the guards. Uh, but at the time, it, I wasn't really. It wasn't. It, it, it wasn't it, a, a lifestyle choice I was hoping yeah. to make, uh, but. My cousin applied at the same time, and he got in like a year and a half later. So when I was on the dole in Castlebar, I went down to Templemore to his passing out, <laughs> knowing that I could have passed out a year ago if I had ticked, ticked I will rather than ticked I won't. But, um, amazing. Ah, but no. I, I, but you were never going. Uh, no, were you? No, no, no. But, uh, but but as I said, like later on when I was comparing wages, I was thinking. I would have, I'd have been better off. <laughs> but then again, I wouldn't have had the range wing and all that. Kind of exactly. Stuff, you so know, you went to community. So, you're, so you went down the dole. And uh, like, I mean, people talk about being on the dole in the 80s. And a lot of people were. But they were able to live. Well, of course, I was living at home reasonably. as well. Reasonably. Yeah, really. Like um, I mean. And um, I had kind of my mind made up that I wanted to try and get into the army. Okay. Um, and th the problem was that there was no recruitment in the West at that time. Um, and I applied to the 29th Battalion as a recruit. And the only reason they even agreed to interview me, this would have been about 81 or 82 or something like that. Um, my my CEO in Castlebar was friendly with the CEO in Monaghan. So, okay. so they agreed to interview me. Um, and at the interview, I had to give a commitment a minimum of three years in the 29th Battalion, Monaghan, Coothill and, and Cavan. Mm -hmm. uh, and ironically, the only way I could escape, um, the only way I could escape the, the clutches of the 29th Battalion was to apply for selection. So if you can imagine Hell Week multiplied by four. <laughs> and this is for the Rangers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, that's what it was like. Yeah, yeah it's a very When did the Rangers come into, into being? 82. Oh, that late? Yeah, yeah. 
that late. Yeah. And this was to be, you'd often hear of, say, special forces or commandos or something like that. And uh, you read about this. This is the elite wing mm. of the Irish, uh, uh, Irish yeah. Army. Yeah. How big is it or how big was it? Uh, not that big. Um, but to put this into context, uh, when I started selection, there was 58 of us started on a Sunday evening. There was 11 gone by the next morning, and we finished with 10. Finished with 10? Yeah. No, that's... I, I've, I've, I used to run courses, a bit like, like Ray and the lads on Hell Week. Um, uh, <laughs> but I, I know certainly one of them, we start with about 40 and finish with four. And I know there has been two courses, one that had one and one that had none. I was about to say. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, 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 they'll never sacrifice quantity for quality, you know, and, and it's not the type of a place where, where you should. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's... Mental or physical? What's, what's the, the big breaker? I always said to people, it's mental. Yeah. Um, because you could see it in students, just like... You know, you've seen Hell Week on RTE. I have, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can look at people and you can see them making the excuse. Oh, you know, tendons are gone or the ankle's gone. Yeah. You know, whereas... That's a, red, that's a flag there straight away. Yeah, like, I would always tell people that, that you know, if, if you're prepared mentally, the physical stuff is just pain. Uh, but if, if you're not, if your head isn't into it mentally, um, like, I... I <laughs> I had, I had a habit of, um, you'd see some of the guys, you'd be screaming and roaring and shouting and all that kind of stuff. And kind of a gung-ho kind of a thing. I, I know, well, I mean, you have to put, like, the the idea is that you get a disparate group of soldiers, whether they're officers or NCOs. Oh, yeah, excuse me, yeah, and yeah. You, you put them all together, but you have to break them down before you can kind of build them up. Yeah. And um, there's no rank structure among them. Yeah. Um, so it, it's... it's um, but yeah, I used to often find that, you know, if you come up behind someone and whisper in their ear, it does a lot more damage <laughs> than roaring <laughs> and shouting, because that's not what they're expecting, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> but I was, I but this, this is the right thing, because there's a, there's a fellow presenter, uh, Cathy Dunn, and her son is just after joining uh, is the Marines. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and he's just after... I don't know what the name of it is, passing out or whatever, like yes, just happened. recently. Yeah, yeah. Just recently. Uh, Cathy's actually over in America at the moment. Uh, there's, there's actually a very good relationship between uh, the British Army and the Irish Army. Uh, okay. In fact, the first time they deployed together was with the EU training mission in Mali in 2011, I think. Because um, I, I, I subsequently served there and... Um, at the time, we had a small detachment, and, and the idea was that it was a European training mission to train the Malayan army. Um, so there was a British, um, it was the Royal Irish Rangers, um, so there's about, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them, and we had, up, up in the training camp, we had, I think, two lieutenants and four NCOs or something like that. And um, what, what the British company commander did, which was very good, in, instead of, we'll say, the Irish officers and Irish NCOs training Malayan platoon. Yeah. He mixed them all up, Irish officers with British NCOs, British officers with Irish NCOs, and it was absolutely brilliant. It was no problem. Was odd. It was, it was, it was really good. Really but why good. is that? Are they, the Rangers are called the Royal Irish Rangers. No, the, yeah, don't, don't think about Irish Rangers. No, this is a regiment in the... Oh, excuse British me. Army. I was about to yeah. say, like, why, yeah. why, why, why would it be why, a royalty? Why would it be royal? Yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, but ironically, of everyone that was there, that, of the British and the Irish units, there was only two English people. One was the company commander of the Royal Irish Rangers, mm -hmm. and the other was an Irish sergeant. And everyone else was from, from the north to the south. Yes, I get you. I get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But not like it, it was. I used to go up to that. I was based in the capital of Bamako, but I used to go up to that training camp regularly. And you know, you'd see the tricolour and the Union Jack flying side by side. You know, at, at, at the training mission, and it was, it, it. it it taught them about how we operate and it taught us how they operate and suddenly they became aware of types of stuff we were doing overseas because mm -hmm. uh, they, they obviously have a different over they don't serve in the UN as such well Cyprus they have a small contingent in, in Cyprus 
Um, but no, actually, where I am now in, in South Sudan, uh, there's seven or eight uh, British Army officers. Um, well, they come with baggage, Kevin, don't they? I mean, if you, an English... Because well, of the colonial pa- past, if you're going into these things, there is a well, kind well, of there baggage. Is, there, yeah, oh, there is, yeah, and, and it's certainly something that has stood to us in, yeah, in the, the Congo the, and Lebanon and everything that, that you know, we, 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 we have yeah. ourselves been oppressed in the past. Yeah, correct, um, correct, yeah. We, we <coughs> been around, yeah. Um, which, yeah, that, yeah that, that, that was, it was certainly good to see. Come here. Uh, very good, very good. Tell us, you, uh, we wanted to be, how did you make your way to Loch Ray? It, it, Good question. Um, so m- my brother Brendan is here. He came as, as the Brendan, uh, chief court clerk. He's not. Uh, the, where is he now? He's, he's not down in Loch Ray now. He, where, where is he? But no. Well, he's the, the court manager for the West, basically. He, he's, he's, yeah. like, he's like the GOC of, of the Western Commons. Yeah. Because yeah. He, um, but yeah, not like, like yeah. He, he's he. I think he operates a day a week here from the from the courthouse. But um, yeah, he's living in Kildare on the far side of the. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So Brendan was here and. Back when, when myself and my wife got married, we were living in Barna. And I was based in Athlone and Claire was based down in, in Kilinina. And um, we were on the wrong side of the city. I was about to say. So we were kind of looking at uh, an arc from from Gort through Loch Ray to Athenry. Um, settled on a, a, put down a deposit on a house in Athenry. Um, and when Claire was, I think, eight months pregnant, the guy gazumptus. Um, so we came back looking in at houses in Loch Ray and we bought a house in Clunou. Uh And then subsequently bought a site just out further out the road in Lurgan and uh, have been there ever since. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, actually, my sister Sandra is in my column and my sister Linda is in Canvera. So the, four, the four of us are in Galway. We're trying to repopulate Galway with my own people. Good idea, good idea. You're not the, fir- you're not the first, you won't be the last. Tell us the uh, and you have a couple of kids. Yeah, two kids, Ellen and Ben. And, and they went to school. Went went, to, went went to school here, and then Ellen is uh, in second year psychology in Glasgow, and uh, Ben has just finished law and economics in in Dublin. No fear of them joining the army or following in your footsteps. No, and and you know the sad thing is, I wouldn't recommend. I couldn't recommend it. The way the way the army has gone, the defence force has gone in, in terms of paying conditions. Yeah. Uh, I just, hear a lot of it on the uh, radio. Yeah, it's, it's, it's for me. Like, and I, I spent thirty four years in the organisation, and, and I was, as we said earlier, I was extremely passionate about it, and, and still am passionate about it. But um, when when you see how how badly people are treated in terms of paying conditions, and no matter what happens, or oh, we call in the army, or oh, there's queues in Dublin Airport, we will bring the army in, yeah. but we won't pay them. Yeah, you know, uh, it's. And then with restructuring, when when the change at loan from being um, a brigade headquarters, mm-hmm. um, it is, and then moved the brigade headquarters not just to Dublin, yeah, but the wrong side of Dublin. Okay, Rat Mines. Okay, you know because yeah, yeah. if you're commuting, yes. Um, so like you've you've guys coming from Donegal to do guard duty in Dublin, it makes like no, no sense. sense, none whatsoever. No uh, sense. And like you know, people are are using their feet and leaving you know you can't uh, I mean if you're trying to buy a house or something like that I mean you oh, just yeah. can't afford no, you won't yeah. get a bloody mortgage and, and, and certainly and like with numbers shrinking in the army and, and our commitments abroad haven't shrunk yeah um, so now people are getting mandatory selected to go to Lebanon or Syria because it used to be vo- surely voluntary was it uh, yeah and, and, and it was like a much sought after because you got an extra bit of money yeah um, but at points but in your life I'd imagine Kevin yeah, when you could say right, I, I I can get away. Yeah, like to like, do something or to make money for something or whatever like that. But yeah, like when when you maybe every twelve months or doing six months in Lebanon, you know that's a huge strain on on family and, yeah. and relationships and yeah. all that that sort of stuff. Um, although <laughs> I have to say, in in my own case, um, I went as a military observer to the Middle East in two thousand and five. Uh, to UNSO, which is the oldest uh, UN mission, and it has like footprints in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, and Israel. And uh, at that stage, it was a family mission. Um, so, uh, what do you mean a family mission? You can bring your family with you. Okay, excuse me. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and they get a UN ID card, and uh, you know it was all. Mm-hmm. So, like once I got settled, I was working in 
and living in Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee. My God, good idea. So yeah. Claire and the kids came out, and um, you know the kids went to a local. They, they were like four and five at, at the time, uh, and then I was transferred to Lebanon. Uh, so the four of us were living in an apartment in in Tyr, which is about maybe fifteen k from the Israeli border, um, and as a military observer. I'd go off for seven days on a patrol base with four other guys and then I'd come back down for four or five days and then go back up again and um, the kids were going to a local English-speaking Arab school um, and everything was hunky-dory. We we had the kids in... Claire didn't mind? No, was there, no. Was there, was there uh, other wives? Oh, oh, there was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All, a, other yeah. nationalities. Community there. there. Um, but, you know, we were in Jordan. We had the kids camping with the Bedouin in Wadi Rum. Uh, we were in Damascus, Beirut, you know, everything was great. Uh, my sister and her husband came out for a, a holiday and they flew back on Monday morning. I went off on Tuesday morning for a seven-day patrol and I said, you know, I'll see you in seven days. And the following day, the war between uh, Hezbollah and Israel kicked off. And there was 34 days of absolute butchery. Um, it took the UN nearly over two weeks to evacuate the families. And from where I was, I could see the jets dropping bombs on tier. On tier? On tier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Claire knew where I was on the skyline, and she could see the same thing happening. Yeah. Um, so eventually when, when um, what they did was they, they chartered a, a cruise ship from Cyprus. Yeah. And they brought it over. And we had, four, at that time, we had four patrol bases. So of the, of the 20 guys deployed, I think four of us had our family in tier. So they, they tried to organize a, uh, armored cars to bring us down to say goodbye. So the other three guys got down where I was, we were getting hammered with artillery fire and tank fire. So when Claire and two kids were getting into the lifeboat to bring them out to the ship, I rang her on the phone and I said, I'll see you when I see you, which is not a great way to attend a family mission to the Middle East. <laughs> And, and then, well, certainly is. They, they, they were quite fortunate in that when because Cyprus was full, all the hotels were full with refugees from Lebanon. Yeah, yeah. So there was Irish guards working with the UN in in uh, in Limassol, and they knew there was I think it was a Ryanair flight was going in about two hours, so they, they managed to stall the Ryanair flight. And I think there was three Irish families. When so they went straight from the boat to the plane straight home. And then Claire was at home, I think, two days. And the Israelis dropped a bomb on the base just up for me, killing four very good friends of mine. Who Claire and the kids would have known. Like. Um, so, yeah, that, that's um, as, as that, what we were talking about, families overseas. <laughs> that triggered my, my uh, yeah, bringing your family to a war zone probably is. Yes, yeah, I mean it was all going well. They were lo- uh, lovely. The kids were lovely age as well. They weren't. St- oh, they, if they, they were a bit older, they'd have been in yeah. regular thing. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, God almighty. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was horrific over there. Yeah, oh, it was. I remember like, growing up, Lebanon was. Uh, I mean, Beirut, Beirut. We, we, used to be we had um, we had <coughs> fifty-two officers in in this unit of observers, and in the space of four days, we lost over ten percent. With the four guys killed, we had another guy shot in the back, he's now in a wheelchair. And we had an Australian captain was in an armoured car that was shelled and she had her back broken. She was actually evacuated on a stretcher with, with Claire and the kids. Um, so yeah, that was it. And then, in, in true UN fashion, about a month after the ceasefire, I was transferred back into Israel to, uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, I had certain specific views. <laughs> I was about, about that country I was at that about, state. I was about to say, um, yeah. But I, I have to say, though, um, Jerusalem is just an incredible city to live in. Is it? Ah, it is. Like, especially with a background in archaeology. That's right, um, yeah. We'll get but, on to that, yeah. But um, like, to, just to see the dynamic between the three great monotheistic faiths, you know, Judaism, Islam and Christianity, and, and how they interact to each other and within each other. Like, we'll say... We'll say Christianity. Yeah. <clears throat> Holy Site in Christianity is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, yeah. in Jerusalem, where our Lord was crucified. Um, the, there is, I think, six different Christian denominations own certain parts of the interior of the church. Okay. Greek Orthodox, Greek Catholic, 
uh, Russian Orthodox. The Ethiopian nuns are on the roof. Um, but the dynamic between these is absolutely vicious. Between the, yeah. the Christian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like if, if one crowd are, are Russian sweeping the floor and some of the dust goes into the other crowd, like the Israeli police are often called in, in to separate them. Okay. And every evening and every morning, the main door is locked and unlocked by the Nusebi family, who are Sunni Muslims. Because the other crowd won't, they don't, like the, the w within the church, there's a thing called the, the edicule, which is the, the, the spot where the crucifix yes. was. Um, or so, sorry, where, where our Lord was laid in the tomb. And um, like it, it, it really is about the size of this room, so it's, it's tiny. Okay. Um, and back in 1921, there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. And some of the stones of that particular building were, were cracked. So they couldn't figure out how to repair it. So essentially, they got four iron girders, four on each side, and bolted them together. Okay. And it was like that until 2016, when the, the, the different churches finally agreed on the best way to uh, restore the whole thing. Yeah, uh, it, in front of the church, on the right-hand window, kind of on the second floor, there's a wooden ladder, and that's called the immovable ladder, because someone put it there probably to clean the windows in around 1860. And because no one knew who had given permission or whatever, it's still there. It's still there. Like, when you come into the church, if you look up before you win the door of the church, there's a, there's a wooden ladder stuck on a window. Okay. Um, and then, like, look at the dynamic within Judaism, between the ultra-Orthodox, mm -hmm. the Orthodox, and the secular. Um, and they don't like each other. Yeah. And then, of course, in Islam, you have Sunni Shia. Yeah. Um, so, all that dynamic going on, it's just... It's uh, and I, I went back to the Middle East uh, for my last two years in the army so I did a year in Lebanon and a year in, in Jerusalem and uh, it was funny when I was in I'm kind of skipping ahead now Yeah. but when I was as a civilian working for the UN in Central African Republic because it's a high risk mission so we'd get R&R &R every six weeks so after the first six weeks I'd come home see Claire and the kids. Next six weeks I bring Claire to Lebanon. Next six weeks I come home and the next six weeks okay. I bring Claire to Israel. So pre-COVID we were in and out of Israel <coughs> and Lebanon because we had friends there and we'd lived in both countries. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly if I got a chance I would love to work in either of them again. Despite everything that has happened but they're, yes. they're, they're both like both fascinating places, both both full of archaeology. To but as you, as you said, and we were looking, we're going to we're going to get onto that in a second. But could be, um even you're just saying there, like I lived in Tiberias beside the Sea of Galilee. I mean, in 2022, for somebody to actually say that, it just sounds very strange. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's <coughs> like it's biblical. Well, it is. Um, but uh, I. I even that they're still there. Come here. We're going to take a quick. Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break here. Tell me, um, these guys. Look at your. You have a bit of a passion. With all your passions, you also have a passion in the blues. Is it? <laughs> I have indeed. Uh, uh, Tell us about one of these guys. You've got. We've got two songs here. We, we okay, play so one of them. Put, put on Alabama Three first, I think. Yeah, because they're, this they're, is they're one of these iconic groups made famous by the the, the Sopranos. Yeah, you were asking me today. Know it? Yeah, yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I'd highly recommend Alabama Three. They're, they're, um, and this one itself, mostly tongue set. So it's it's a sort of a. It 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 they bring in comments of people like Jim Jones and and these weirdos. Um, yes, and they just put a kind of a, a rap rhythm around it. Um, okay, and very ironic in in the, the way they, they 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 use the the language and 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 the words that these guys get against them. Well, we'll have a listen. We'll have a listen to this. We won't hear it all now, but we'll have a listen to this now because it's about five minutes long, and we'll see where it goes. But I don't ever say hate is your enemy. Love has practically caused me to just get you destroyed. If I had hated a little more, just a little more, 
we would have had a little less trouble. But I look at my forms analytically. Sure, you got love. Principle! But don't say, hate is my enemy. What to say? What's that word? Hate is my enemy. I gotta fight it day and night. What else of bells is alignment? Love's the only weapon. Shit! Bullshit! Alabama 3 of course with um, Woke Up This Morning was the, the one that everybody knew with that the was Sopranos the one, yep. yeah and that's mostly tongue said and are they are, what are, are they a blues band they are a blues band uh, or are they well I, I think I once heard them described as being 
a mixture of techno country rock and psychedelic something else. <laughs> Which, <laughs> and if, if you listen to some of their stuff, it, you know, it, it, it's. Um, there, well, there is something there, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just the, the way the broad umbrella. <clears throat> oh, it is, yeah. And I highly recommend them. They're really good. We're Kevin, I, I, as I just said to you when we were listening to that music, I'm. Uh, I've been getting too interested in your stories about the Middle East. We haven't even talked about Africa. But what we need to talk about is this evening uh, in or this afternoon in the uh, Loch Ray Hotel and Spa, you're going to be delivering a, an archaeological uh, study on yeah, the lake. Yes. Now tell me. So the Cranos. OK, just dispel this for me or tell me about this thing. Because when I was younger, so we'd hear about the Cranos, that you were, they were built out in the lake, be it anywhere. And uh, you had your little steps or... Uh, Things that you could go, they were just underneath the water, and it was thought that and if you, you could know, run out if you didn't know it. Uh, those lads would slip off, you get to it, and then you could knife them or spear them or arrow them as they tried to get out of the water. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of um, sort of myths have 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 developed around Cranogs. Um Certainly, th- like they're often described as <coughs> defensive man-made islands in a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, not too fully sure about the defensive aspect of them because if you look at the Cranogs here near the lake shore, Barrack Island, Long Island, Switch Island, over the far side, Ash Island, Reed Island, Blakes Island, you know, <laughs> you, you, the, those you, names. Uh, I only have a couple <laughs> of names of those, you know. Uh, I've, 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 I've been living these, these. Yes, yeah, yeah. But um, you know, like, like the one outside the anglers, the angler at the angling place is. What's the name of that? Right, you've, I'm trying to do my geography now. Switch Island, Long Island, Barrack Island, and Middle Island are the, are the main ones adjacent to the town, and they're um, very close to the yeah, town. Yeah, and th- that's my point. You know, you could start, no, whether the la- whether you could the start lake- flinging rocks at them. You could <laughs> whether the lake a bow and arrow, and, and the, the lake was was probably shallower then. Uh, yeah. So I, I I think now Island McCool, definitely you can say that has a defensive nature. But mm-hmm. as I say in my talk, that's not your classical like the classical Cranog is sort of early medieval like between like the 6th and the 9th century AD uh, and they're broadly comparable with, with ring forts broadly um, that's your classic Cranog that we see today and is it that late 6th to the 9th century yeah it is okay go but, on yeah, but, yeah. but lake settlement goes back to like 7000 BC yes yeah so what what I've what I've from my, my studying of the lake I believe there's three distinct periods or three di- three distinct issues. So most of the Cranogs, apart from Island Coo and Shore Island, all the others, in my opinion, are more than likely late Iron Age. Like you know, and you know, probably uh, the bulk of them may be being built or used between the sixth, ninth, tenth century AD. Shore Island, completely different proposition. First of all, Shore Island. Is not your classic Cranog. Chore Island was a promontory. Still is a promontory. Whereabout is that now? So if if you were if you were looking across from from um, well, it's just down from from Coring House. Okay, the Bishop's, the bishops. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hard enough to see because it, depending on what we were looking at, it it it, it kind of blends in. But with the, the reeds background. are all oh, the and, reeds. And the reeds yeah, well. the reeds are all around. Um, it, yeah. But Shore Island is very interesting. For a number of reasons. First of all, there there is definite Neolithic activity on it. No, okay, bring, so, bring so, that into time. Okay, bring it into. In, so we'll say, um, if you look at the three ages of stone, you have the Mesolithic, Mesolithic, the sorry, the Paleolithic, the Old Stone Age, the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age, and the Neolithic, the New Stone Age. Okay, Paleolithic kind of goes up to about like, sort of ten thousand BC. From, okay, from where not a lot of evidence in Ireland. Some, but not great evidence. Mesolithic, loads of it. So the Mesolithic, the old settlement we have in Ireland uh, is Lochbora up in the north, and sorry, Lochbora in Slapbang in the middle of the country. That's right, yeah, where they have the and, thing now, yeah. And 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 uh, Mount Sandal on the River Ban, and both of those are about seven thousand and ten BC. Seven thousand and ten. Jesus, you yeah. put the ten in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it was it was oh, seven to ten thousand. No, okay. no, no, seven thousand and ten, as in that's the the date. Okay. Okay. From from uh, dendrochronology, um, and that that kind of goes up to about four thousand BC. Mm-hmm. And the general view is that these were hunter gatherers. Yeah. Um, 
And from 4000 BC up to about 2500 BC, you have the Neolithic. The big change in the Neolithic is that uh, you have the introduction of agriculture. Um, and also you have uh, communities, instead of moving like the hunter-gatherers, like, like we say following fish, different seasons, what they can get, mm-hmm. whether it was plants and nuts or whether it was eels and salmon or whatever. Um, but in the Neolithic, people become sedentary. They start cultivating the land. Uh, there's pressure on the land. And we see this new phenomenon called megalithic tombs, uh, of which Newgrange would be like the high point of megalithic tomb building in Ireland. Um, and that's sort of the, the, the Neolithic finishes about 2,500 BC, and you, you have the Bronze Age. Okay. And in the Bronze Age, you see the introduction of metallurgy. So bronze and copper and stuff like that, uh, but you still have megalithic tombs, which is the, the wedge tomb class. Mm-hmm. So also in the in the the Bronze Age, you're standing stones, uh, you're full of the fear, you have ring barrows, stuff like that. Then you come into the early medieval period where you're looking at ring forts, cashels, uh, cran oaks. Um, then later on, you're looking at um, Anglo Normans. Or sorry, you have souterrains as well, which is like a... a yeah, there's one beside our farm, actually, yeah. on the golf club, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I think that one was excavated. Was yeah, it is. Yeah, you, go, yeah. you can go down to it. Oh, well, um, I don't know. Well, there, yeah, there there's a funny feeling the one it. near the golf course was excavated. I, I can't remember exactly. Mm. Um, and then, of course, you have the, the arrival of the Anglo-Normans, so you've got um, castles, tower houses, uh, moated sites, uh, of which Kieran will be talking about uh, in the morning. Um, and you have, of course, the Carmelites, the Abbey, uh, and you've Deer Park. Um, so there's, when, when you're looking at, at people's interaction with the lake, uh, I'd be pushing it back towards the Mesolithic up until, well, I mean, they're still interacting with the lake. Of people course, people yeah, stop yeah. On, on Isle of Macoo to have their lunch when they're fishing, you know, so there's yeah. still th- that interaction. Uh, but going back to Shore Island, the reason I think it's significant is that it was excavated in um, 1886, I'll, I'll get the correct date, yeah, yeah, George okay, came yeah. in. <clears throat> and um, when he was talking to the locals, um, he was told that someplace between Shore Island and Reed Island, um, there was what's called a midden. So a midden is like a, a rubbish dump, but this was a rubbish dump for bones. And a local contractor extracted 300 tons of bone animal bone from the midden including in that was the antlers of a megalosaurus hibernicus which is the giant irish red deer yeah. measuring nearly 14 foot from time to time yeah two stories are circulating about what happened one was that it got broke and one that it ended up in some stately home but either way there's no there's no um context so it wasn't as if someone excavated it down and found it here and found something that could tie in because, yes. yeah, because yeah. the giant Irish red deer died out at about 10,000 BC. Okay. Um, so that's where I'm kind of pushing the fact that that the reason that Neolithic people were active on Shore Island was maybe because other because the the Mesolithic people didn't just say Sayonara, we're out of here. Yeah. You can stay and, and do agriculture. We're going to hunter gather someplace else. I mean, there was hundreds of years possibly of, of interaction between the two. Yes. And, you know, Mesolithic people might become Neolithic in the sense that they might have adopted the Neolithic style of of cultivating the land and, mm-hmm. and agriculture and all that. Um, so it may well be that whatever Neolithic people were on Shore Island uh, were there because someone was there earlier. Now, that's no way to prove that. But yeah. It, it's just like a hypothesis I have. Uh, <clears throat> but there was definitely Neolithic activity because they found an arrowhead and a stone axe. Um, was this in the late 19th century or yeah, yeah. late 19th does, century? Does, the only thing that's been done to any of the Cranlogs since then is treasure hunters in the 70s. 1970s? Yeah. Um, and in fairness, um, the museum, the National Museum, did have a kind of, um, I won't say a reward scheme, but... Um, Basically, if, if you turned over what you had, along with the context, because like treasure hunting is illegal. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what many people don't know, the law is that you have, if you have a metal detector in the boot of your car, within a hundred meters of a national monument. Now, a national monument is anything that's recorded 
So Stonehenge, or not Stonehenge, sorry, Newgrange or... Every single one of those crannogs is a national monument. Okay. Every ring fort is a national monument. Okay. Every abbey, every standing stone, every item like yeah. that, if it's recorded on, on the site's a monument register. So if you have, a, as I said, a, a metal detector in the boot of your car within 100 metres, I think it is, of one of these. The last time I checked, I think, I'm sure someone will correct me, but I think it's a fine of three or four thousand pounds and are up to three months in jail. Yeah, so this comes from people around the place. Yeah, but this comes from the Durin Flan horde. Yes, and the complexities involved, like like the Durin Flan horde, is a hugely significant find. Mm-hmm. But it was found by treasure hunters who were on the land illegally. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, they handed it up, but then who owns it? Yeah, and then we'll say even if the farmer took it up, it depends on whether it fell off the back of a horse, shall we say? I was intentionally buried. Yes. There's, there's, there's some legal niceties over again over that. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, and after the treasure hunters, you have me snorkeling around the, the, the crown office. So that's... <laughs> that's <laughs> that you were saying. You were saying you were snorkeling around looking... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember one day, I, I, it was a wet winter's day, and um, I had just bought a wetsuit, or sorry, a dry suit. Oh, yeah. So a wetsuit, you pull it on and yeah. you zip it up, but a dry suit, there's a kind of zip at the back. And I, w- I went into the courthouse thinking Brendan would be there. And one of his staff, he was one of his staff, and she was, kind of, she was kind of looking at me. And I said, would you mind zipping me up the back? <laughs> I need to go into the lake. <laughs> Good idea. She, she thought I had two heads. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come here, look at, I'm just keeping an eye on the time, uh, Kevin. Fantastic. Look at, uh, your love of archaeology, Kim, you went into, we've only a minute or so left. You you studied this in UCG. I did, yeah. I, I went in as, as, a, as a mature student. Um, and actually, a, a quick one, in, in second year, we were supposed to do um, a study of, of, go out and record 20 known archaeological sites in your home area. <clears throat> So I decided I'd use the area where my wife is from, Kilinina. And I had a map, a black and white map of, of sites. And normally, can, sometimes it can take a while to find them. So mm-hmm. I went out for a run with a map, a bit like orienteering. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for a cashew, which is like a stone ring fort. And I was standing on a wall, and it was on the boundary, we'll say, between agricultural land and, and moorland, like the mountain. And I looked down into this field, and there's a bunch of stones, and I said, it looks a bit... So I ran down anyway, and there's a few stones standing up, and a few stones have fallen down. And I said to myself, "That's a wedge tool." So I went down to the farmer that owns the land, and I said, um, "Do you know anything about the those stones up in the field?" Uh, I thought it was very significant. He says, "Jesus, young fella, there's people from the village buried up there." And I said, "And he said there must be hundreds of years old." And I said, "It's actually like probably close to five thousand years old," which kind of blew his brain. But the folk memory, yes, there's people buried there. Yes, what yeah. I thought was significant. So I, I had, ne- I, I had I never died. Had never died away. I, I, I took a picture and got it developed, and went into the one of the professors in the archaeology department, John Waddell, and I said, "Excuse me, professor, could I get your opinion on this?" And he goes, "Oh yes, yes, megalithic tomb. It's wedge tomb. Which one is it?" And I said, uh, "It's an unrecorded one." And he said, "My word." Some of us spend all our professional careers hoping for a find like that. <laughs> the following weekend, I'm looking for the same cashew that I missed. Yes. I found another wedge tomb, and then I found a portal tomb. I found three megalithic tombs in three weeks. My well, God. <laughs> well, fair play to you, Kevin. That's fantastic and wonderful thing. Kevin, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate it, and the best of luck. I'll be up there today uh, listening to, uh, the, listen to uh, the, your, your talk on the lake. And I uh, hope everybody has a, a, a great weekend. Medi- the medieval festival, there's lots of stuff on. So uh, it's great. It's, it's, great, it's great to celebrate because, I mean, there's, there's, as I said at the start, there's a very rich, varied and, and interesting history. And in not just the town, the medieval town, the lake, the surrounding countryside, Absolutely. the deer park. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And tell me before, are you back to Chad, is it? No, I'm in South Sudan. South Sudan. So I fly back uh, on the, the 10th. The best to look to you. Thanks very much. <laughs> thanks very much. Kevin, thanks very much. And we're going to play it out with you and I by five Vance. Northern Ireland men. Northern Ireland men with an absolutely incredible voice. Fantastic. Go out and listen to him. Well worth it.
Fantastic. It's all about you and I.
very much. Colin McLean on guitar. Keeney on the keys. Connor Craner on the bass. Just Kelly, Richie, Kathleen, and Claire are the Arco Quartet. Tommy on the drums and the boss. <laughs> Thank you very much. Tonight, see. Daniel Cronin's In Conversation With, brought to you by Puris Ultra Pure CBD, the first CBD food supplement backed by clinical studies. Puris is not addictive and won't give you high. Loved by actress and TV personality Martine McCutcheon for general coping and rugby legend Mike Tyndall for sleep. Visit the website today on www.puriscbd.com.